All right, back in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 1. Is it good to be a follower? This world is very prone to uh, try to divide people into leaders and followers, and not everybody crisply fits into one of those categories, but uh, people try to do that nonetheless. And of course, uh, multitudes of studies have been conducted in order to figure out what makes a person fall into each category. And uh, many of them, uh, if it wasn't so tragic, it would be funny to read the evolutionary overtones. Some would say the leadership mentality comes from the days of trying to be the silverback ape in the group, and uh, such nonsense. And of course, people are encouraged to be out in front of the pack, to aspire to be the alpha male or a female, to drive a dodge and grab life by the horns, to be the one whose parents put one of those stickers that say that you're an honor student on their car. Or one grocery store in town, you see the big banner on the wall, we set the standard. We're the ones that determine where we're going around here. Now I realize there's those with more of a leadership personality and calling, and there's many factors to that, genetics, training, environment, and then spiritual gifts in the Christian life. But technically speaking... Everybody is a follower of something. As A.W. Tozer put it, human self-sufficiency is a myth. There is no such thing as completely independent thinkers. Everybody is following something. And of course, true biblical leadership, whether that's in the church or in the family or within friendships or in uh, discipleship relationships, it's a matter of following the right set of footprints first and then beckoning others to come along. Uh, one of the things hanging on the wall in my office was a picture my wife got me. In fact, it was before we were married, and it's a guy fly fishing on it, which automatically makes me sort of like the picture. But uh, what it says is some of you have seen the statement, leadership. A leadership is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. Well, that's a true statement. But again, we ask the question, what is it that makes any sort of biblical leader know the way? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That really is what Paul was acknowledging. Now, Paul was speaking as an apostle when he said in 1 Corinthians 11, Be ye followers of me. But even Paul, as an apostle, some of you know the next part of that statement. He says, be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Even Paul acknowledged that his leadership was at first a followership. Now, virtually every growing, maturing Christian person is going to find themselves in some kind of leadership capacity in the Christian life. That could be as an oldest child. You oldest children, that's a leadership responsibility that's been handed to you by God. As a parent, as a grandparent, as some kind of mentor, in the process of discipling other people, pouring into the generations that follow you, all of those things involve leadership at one form or another. 
But the question from the text this morning is not so much, are you a leader or a follower, but who or what are you really following? In whose footsteps are you walking? Notice the admonition at the beginning here of verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God. I go through passages like this. I think it's a healthy thing to ask questions of the text, not in a cynical sort of way, but to try to ascertain, why is this here? What's the purpose? Who's it speaking to? I know for myself, I read that and I thought, humanly speaking, we would say, isn't that kind of self-evident? I mean, a man who wrote so much deep theology, passages like Romans 9 through 11, would he really need to say to a fairly mature set of believers at Ephesus, to be followers of God. I mean, don't believing people intrinsically know that they're supposed to be followers of God? Well, still in the United States, even though there's a downward trend, roughly uh, three out of every four or 75% of Americans still claim the title Christian. Now think, in our nation, what passes as normal. I don't even need to go through a list. Thus, three quarters of our nation reflect the ideals and the righteousness and the character of the God of the Bible. You know, it was clear back in 1991, nearly 40 years ago, when a very unique national survey was conducted. It was carried out with thousands of people at 50 different locations across the country. And at the time, it was the most extensive survey of its kind. Respondents were promised that their answers would remain completely anonymous. And they were encouraged to answer with 100% transparency. And so these respondents sat down and they proceeded to answer 1,800 questions on matters relating to everyday life and religion and morality and economics and ethics, and patriotism, you name it, in 1,800 questions, most of it was covered. Well, eventually the findings of that survey were published in a book that came out in 1991, 270 pages by James Patterson and Peter Kim, and the book was called The Day America Told the Truth. Now, keep in mind, this was 40 years ago, almost 40 years ago, And back in 1991, roughly 85% of Americans said, I am a Christian. One of the questions was things that you would do for $10 million. 25% of this Christian nation admitted they would abandon their family for $10 million. 23% of this Christian nation admitted that they would become a prostitute for an entire week for $10 million. Uh, Bob Dart from the Akron Beacon Journal summarized the book this way in an article that appeared in uh, that newspaper. And here's what he said in relation to that survey in the book. He said, Americans are making up their own rules and laws. The book concluded, we choose which laws of God we believe. There's absolutely no moral consensus in this country as there was in the 1950s and 60s. Now listen to this statement. Religion plays almost no role in shaping most lives. 
the study found. Americans have lost their faith in the institution of marriage, the survey showed. Nearly a third of the married respondents weren't sure they still loved their spouses. Nine out of ten Americans in this Christian nation lie regularly. Nearly a third of all married Americans in this Christian nation have had an affair. A fifth, 20% of the nation's children have lost their purity by the age of 13. And for $10 million, 7% of this Christian nation would agree to kill a stranger for the money. Now again, that was 40 years ago. And what was admitted in the closet back then has obviously become much more commonplace than the day that America supposedly told the truth. Now what that obviously illustrates in mass is that it's quite possible to claim to be a Christian, which, by the way, what does that term mean? A little Christ, a follower of Jesus. It's possible to wear that claim sort of like wearing a political party badge, but still not be a follower of the God of the Bible rather than a God of your own imagination. Now notice what it says. Be ye therefore followers of God. If you back up to the last chapter, the context was because Christ has forgiven you. In other words, basic point number one is that a proper understanding of God's forgiveness when it's rightly understood, inevitably leads to a change of life. Because Christ forgave you, because you understand that, it should be automatic, flowing from that, that you want to be a follower of God. Imagine Christ in the uh, Gospels. He comes up to Peter and the boys on the shores of Galilee, and he says, follow me. And they said, oh, no, no, no. We want the blessings. Thanks for the bread. I'll tell you what, we're good here. You just carry on and I'll tell you what, we'll call you when we need something. And we'd read that and say, you got to be kidding me. That's what a huge percentage of Christianity in America is doing. The word follow means imitate. What does an imitator do? Well, first of all, they want to know all they can about their pattern, and then they want to amend their life to match that pattern. That's what it means to be an imitator of God. I can tell you for years in my own experience, I sat in church, I got dunked in the water, I said that I was a Christian, but there was almost zero realization that I was supposed to be an imitator of God. I had my fire insurance. I had taken care of that, I would tell you. I could quote the basic tenets of the gospel. But there was no change of life to back up what I claimed until I was 19 years old. All of a sudden, the Lord's words, follow me, meant something to me. What does it mean to be a Christian to you if you claim that title? Is that something you took care of back there? Or is that something you are 
right now, going forward. And notice the description given right here in this text. Be ye followers of God as dear children, as beloved offspring. So, uh, in other words, one who's aware of the position of acceptance and unchanging love they occupy, beloved, and is concerned that they're growing to become just like their Father in heaven as much as possible. God puts within our own children. Sometimes you as parents look and you see this little guy or this little lady and they want to be just like mom or dad. That's what God imprints as a general rule upon His real people. They want to be like their Father in heaven. Now being aware of that position, they are to walk accordingly. The word walk, again, is repeatedly used in the book of Ephesians. Remember there's in the Christian life state and standing. There's a position we're given when we come to Christ. That's the first half of Ephesians. And then the second half of Ephesians, on top of that foundation, is all right, now walk, now live according to what God made you. Now, uh, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to walk here? Being a follower of God, being an imitator of Him, means to walk in love. Now, there's many words in the Greek language for love, and most of you can probably guess which one this is. It's the word agape. It's not ooey-gooey emotion primarily. It can involve emotion, but that word is a supernatural, self-sacrificing love that comes from God Himself and no other source. That's why it's mentioned in Galatians 5 as part of the fruit, the evidence of the Spirit's presence in a person's life. In 1 John 4, 8, John writes, He that loveth not knoweth not God. Jesus said in John 13 to his disciples, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. By the way, that better be biblically defined. All kinds of heretics use that verse wrongfully in the ecumenical movement today. But it's one of the tests of belonging to God at all. And of course, there's a lengthy description given in 1 Corinthians 13. But we're given more description right here in the text. What does it mean to walk in love? What further information do we have? As Christ also hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Do you notice that order? Christ gave himself for us. Uh, but it doesn't end there. Why did He give Himself for us? He gave Himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God the Father. The word offering means a presentation, a yieldedness to be sanctified or set apart. The word sacrifice refers to the cost. Think about this. Christ's devotion to his Father caused him to be yielded completely to him. As a result of that yieldness, it then cost him something on behalf of you and I. 
And that was a sweet-smelling savor or a beautiful fragrance to God, a picture of the incense that would ascend off of that altar. And you and I are called to walk in love the same way. How so? Well, first of all, people can never be the primary aim. God is. First of all, it has to come subjection to Him. There has to come uh, Romans 12 sort of yieldedness. Present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. But a life that comes there is going to end up sacrificing as they choose to pour into the lives of others. Let me put it this way. You cannot be an imitator of God and be really following Him and walking in love without ministering to others. It's not possible. Somebody says, well, I'm yielded to God. Is that showing itself in fruit as you minister to others? If not, something's wrong with that picture. It's like Christ was yielded to the Father, and He gave Himself for us, and it cost Him something. It's going to cost you something, and time, and effort, and labor, and anguish, and tears, and heartache, and everything else. What can you physically do for Christ today? You say, oh, if only I could be there in that dinner chamber and pour that ointment on His feet. I don't want to take it out of context because it referred primarily to the Jews, but I think we can make application. Whatever you've done to the least of one of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. That's not something that just happens. Let me ask you again, are you an imitator of God? Now, verse 3 takes up the other side of that coin. And biblical love, of course, properly defined, is never and can never be independent of truth. In fact, you can't really love a person biblically without wanting what's best for them. Highlight this in your mind. According to God's definition. Since love, I don't mean ooey-gooey sentimentality and brotherly affection and the erotic sort that our culture is so fond of, but biblical love as an attribute of God is primarily concerned about God and His holiness since it comes from Him. And so to love somebody else, I'm preeminently going to be concerned with the will of God in their life. Happens all the time. Somebody says, well, you know, I, I know the Bible says such and such, but I just love them too much to baloney. Let's not desecrate an attribute of God by dragging it through the mud of evil redefinition. You think you love somebody too much to obey God? You don't understand love. That's not scriptural love. 
You know, we're warned multiple times in the New Testament about the coming apostasy of falling away from truth. And of course, uh, that really has little to do with the world getting worse. We know that's going to happen also. But apostasy is dealing with the professing people of God. It's dealing with the kind of thing that was mentioned in the day America told the truth. It speaks of the professed followers of Christ departing from their biblical moorings and redefining God in their own image. And one of the major characteristics of that hit multiple places in the New Testament is twisting the grace of God into a license to sin. And basically teaching that eternal security means you can live however you want without any consequences. Both of those are hellish heresies. Jude warned in his little epistle in verse 4 about the coming of ungodly men that he said would turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. What does that mean? He says, listen, there's coming a troop of teachers under the heading of Christianity that are going to teach the grace of God in such a way that it gives you license to live evilly and expect God to just smile and do nothing about it. You don't have to look very far today to find that. That's the God of Oprah Winfrey. That's the God of the shack. That's the God of the emerging church. But here's what I want to point out. It is in keeping with walking in love. In fact, it's demanded by it. It's right in the same context. Walk in love. And in context with that walk of love, Paul goes on to describe certain lifestyle choices that are utterly forbidden to anybody who's actually an imitator of God. Look at verse 3. What things? But fornication. That actually is a very general word. It's the word pornea. Where in fact, it's where we get the word pornography. That's the Greek word behind that. It's a general word referring to sexual activity outside of God's boundaries. One man, one woman, married, monogamous, for life. Anything outside those boundaries, the viewing of pornographic materials and adultery and incest and premarital relations and homosexuality and any and all perversions of God's good gift fit under that category. The word pornea. By the way, let me say something not popular yet true. This is the real thrust behind the whole abortion debate. The real issue with abortion is not the definition of when life starts. The real issue of abortion is fornication. And you look, I'm pro-choice, or I believe in a right to choose. It's not so much quibbling about when life starts as I want the choice to get in bed with whoever I want without natural consequences. You will not give them to me even if I have to take life to maintain my freedom. That is what's driving this whole debate. You hear it behind the lines all the time. Uncleanness. It's another general word for impurity or filth or degradation, that which is the opposite of God's holiness. Or covetousness. 
That's this wicked desire to accumulate possessions. I know we look in ourselves and say, boy, I want things. It's part of our sin nature. But covetousness is that sinful desire which is allowed to lead to unrighteous behavior. I'm going to fudge my taxes. A salesman's going to twist the truth a little to get the commission. I remember an insurance salesman telling me that he'd never lie to anybody, but he had no problem with the use of puffery. And I said, well, now, what's puffery? He said, well, now, that's when you're just inflating things a little. You fill in the blank on that one. Trying to climb the corporate ladder, lying, cheating, stealing, embezzling, whatever. What, what's the next statement? Fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. Well, let's just love a whole lot and wrap everybody in a cozy blanket of God's tender forgiveness and acceptance and overlook the whole thing. What does he say? Let it not once be named among you as become a saint's. You want to talk about prohibitions. He's saying this is a zero tolerance list of sins among God's people. Sure, we're tempted. Sure, we're still sinners. But these things are not to be smiled at, swept under the rug, and treated as though they didn't exist. He says, don't let it be named among you as becometh saints. The word saints means holy ones. It's a standing we're given. He's saying, listen, you're called a Christian, a little Christ. God has called you a saint, a holy one. You're set apart. Now don't live in such a way as to contradict that calling. Uh, but notice Paul doesn't merely stop with the big flamboyant evils. Now he has something to say about the tongue of a Christian person. Remember James 3, convicting chapter. One of the questions he asks, talking about our speech, he says, does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? In other words, you go to a fountain or you're your uh, drinking fountain and your, your faucet or your fridge, and one time water comes out, and the next time grape juice comes out, and the next time transmission fluid comes out. Well, that's strange, and he's saying, exactly. The Christian's tongue should be a singular fountain. Our tongues have been bought with a price. What does he say we should guard in our speech? Well, how about filthiness? That's obscenity. Shamefulness. That which makes some audiences blush, dirty stories, jokes with sexual overtones, indecency. Foolish talking. I believe it or not, the root word of that means don't talk like a moron. Comes from the word moron. It's useless speech and emptiness of talk. I love the quote, I don't know who said it, but actually Proverbs said something uh, sort of different but similar. Here's what the person said. The wise man speaks because he has something to say. The fool speaks because he has to say something. How about jesting? Now, he's not against humor. Don't joke. Christian people ought to laugh. In a world full of sorrow like this, a merry heart does good like a medicine. I don't think it's any credit to Christ when some Christians get the idea you ought to look like an old prude all the time. 
There is joy in the Christian life. He's not against humor. He's not against smiling. He's not against joy. But what is jesting? Well, that's joking or making light of sin. Again, referring to the Proverbs, it says, fools make a mock at sin. Think about this. What you joke about and laugh about, you are already warming up to the idea of doing. You think Satan knows that? Why do you think in our culture so many evils that have become commonplace start in television sitcoms? They start in an atmosphere of canned laughter. This is funny. This is funny. This is funny. Pretty soon, this is funny turns into this is tolerable. And this is tolerable turns into this is normal. And then this is normal turns into it's okay for Christians to behave this way. He's saying, he's saying don't let yourself slip into making jokes about evil. With, from a Christian person with redeemed lips, he says these things are not convenient. They're not fitting. What if I posted a picture up here this morning of a Hillary Clinton and she was wearing a red hat that said, Make America Great Again. Whatever your thoughts about her or the hat, I think you'd be unified at one thing. That doesn't fit. There's something contradictory going on here. Paul's saying there's the same contradiction and unfittedness from redeemed lips spewing out filth. So you replace that. There's our theme again, replacing, getting rid of the bad, filling it with the good. You replace it with the giving of thanks. I suppose it's a good pattern to say, if you have to say something and you don't know what to say, you can always thank God, can't you? There's always something to be thankful for, and that would keep us out of a lot of trouble. Now, just in case we miss the severity of these warnings, notice verse 5. For this ye know. In other words, he says, this is self-evident among any Bible-taught people of God. And uh, the list here corresponds to what he's already said in verse 3. You can see the same uh, fornicator, uncleanness, covetous. He mentions them again here. Listen, this ye know, Paul says to this church at Ephesus. What was it they knew? What is God's view towards rampant immorality? No whoremonger. That's somebody living in habitual sexual sin. No unclean person, that's somebody dominated by that which is unholy. Or covetous man, and he adds here, which is an idolater. Well, what's the real problem with covetousness? Money is your God. So did we catch those three? 
No whoremonger. No person dominated by filth. No covetous man who's an idolater. What's God's verdict? No inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Now that means exactly what it says. People whose lives are characterized by those descriptions are without Christ, dead in their sins, and heading for hell. And listen, this isn't the only place that direct. Keep your finger there in Ephesians. Let's just do two cross-references. Keep your finger in Ephesians. Turn to Galatians. It's one book back. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. That means clearly seen, readily identified. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings. That's being a party animal. And such like of the which I tell you before, as I've told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Back up a couple more books. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 6. In fact, this chapter starts with believers in the same church taking each other to court, and Paul's horrified at the prospect. But chapter 6, verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. By the way, effeminate is the soft side of the homosexual relationship nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That's the masculine side of it. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Back in Ephesians, let me just clarify a couple things that inevitably come up. First of all, there is not a hint in these passages, and we're in no way talking about losing salvation. And we affirm, and we will always affirm, God help us, true salvation is eternal. This has nothing to do with that, but it has everything to do with the evidence of salvation. How do you know an orange tree is an orange tree? Well, that would be because of the oranges hanging on the branches. Okay, it's not saying do this and you will lose your salvation. But it's saying continue this course and something is seriously wrong and it may prove that you don't know God at all. We're not going to turn there, but you can go there yourself in Matthew 7. The same passage, Jesus is warning about hypocritical judgment. 
And then at the end, he's warning about the wise man and the foolish man. And remember, both of those men heard his words. The wise man heard the words of Christ and did something. The foolish man heard the words of Christ and decided that he knew better. But Christ says something startling in verse 21 and following where he warns the professed followers of his. He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't I prophesied in your name and cast out demons and done many wonderful works? And what's he going to say? He's going to say to them, not, I don't know you anymore. But he's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And what he's expressing, you that had a life, a continual, habitual pattern of unrighteous living, I never knew you. All right, secondly, we're talking about lifestyle, habitual sins. Friends, listen, scripturally. Now hear me out entirely on this point. On one hand, there's no such thing as a Christian homosexual, a Christian adulterer, a Christian thief, a Christian liar, a Christian fornicator, or a Christian party animal. Now, Christians can commit terrible acts. In fact, they can commit everything I just said. You can read 1 Corinthians 5 about the member of that church living improperly with his own stepmother. And Paul doesn't say dogmatically that guy's lost, he just leaves that door open. But what I mean by that is, a Christian can fall into those sins, but a person who stays there as a lifestyle, unrepentant, defying correction, maybe they go and find a church that doesn't judge their wicked behavior because there's plenty of those around, Paul is saying dogmatically, such a person is lost. That is the root problem. How about this one? When does it become habitual? I mean, at what point took David a year to repent of his evil? Well, that's a difficult question, and there's no perfect boundary. That's why we have to be so careful dealing with these kinds of things, and somebody whose life exemplifies this saying, well, at least you're saved. Be careful saying that. It's probably far better to say, I don't know, but I can show you what the Scriptures say. Now, I challenge you to examine yourself whether or not you're in the faith. That's biblical counsel. Do I always know dogmatically between habitual and something going on? Not necessarily. But when somebody goes that way, it can't be all smiley faces and everything's good, brother, see you in heaven. If we're committed to biblical truth and walking in love, we better know better than that. I've actually heard people ignore a passage like this. I remember very early in my Christian life, I was talking with a brother who I was against their shallow evangelism. And we were talking about the fruits in the life of a Christian. And his whole argument was, when does it become habitual? And since we don't know that, it really doesn't matter how somebody lives. Well, then what do we do with passages like this? 
I mean, how about 1 John 3.10? In this, the children of God are manifest. That means clearly seen again. In this, the children of God are clearly seen, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. So the idea you have no idea who's saved and lost is unbiblical garbage. It's foreign to the New Testament. You are not saved by living righteously, but it is an unquestionable evidence of whether or not you belong to God. It's all over the New Testament. Let me point out again, those people on every list of that can be saved. And boy, does that have to be maintained. That section we read in 1 Corinthians will not turn back there, but the very next verse, he says to this congregation in Corinth, glorious words. He says, and such were some of you. Picture a Sunday meeting of that church in Corinth. Here over here is a, a lady or two that spent years as temple prostitutes. And over here is a, a couple of businessmen. They were notorious for their thievery. And then maybe scattered throughout, there's some former lesbians and former homosexuals there sitting and hearing the Bible. Paul isn't saying your life didn't have to change, but he's saying, listen, many of you used to fit that list. And I'm telling you, God has power to save. These verses we're going through are not a club. I get so frustrated, I will tell you. Yes, I'm bothered by the homosexual agenda, but I'm just as bothered by fundamentalist preachers who have such a hateful disposition I receive, and I get these crackpot things in the mail. Sometimes you know, people drop these anonymous letters in the box out here, and some of them are real doozies. I got another one this week. And they're anonymous, and they're from some wingnut, and they're telling me about alien invasions and everything else. They're really more humorous than anything. But I got one just this week. And he quotes Stephen Anderson out of Arizona, who has many screws loose, by the way, if you know who that is. But he says, here's a poem for you to use in your ministry. Roses are red, violets are blue, God hates homosexuals, and so should you. That man is preaching that. How despicable. The very fact that Paul said, such were some of you. What should be our view to the LGBTQ agenda? Yes, it's against God, yes. But I got news for you. God can change you. And you're no more wicked by nature than me. And that has to be maintained. Did you notice something else about these lists that we read? You can go through them again on your own and see this. Sexual sins are at the top every single time. I think, in other words, immorality is the flagship sin 
of a world that professes religion but actually hates the God of the Bible? Why would all of those lists be headed by adultery and fornication? And those that do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Because that's a major warning sign of something wrong with your profession of Christianity. One author put it, In our culture, immorality is treated as a sickness. God calls it sin. Society, even churches, condone it. God condemns it. Experts say the immoral need therapy. God says they need regeneration. Did you also notice, though, the repeated warnings about deception in this area? 1 Corinthians 6.9, right in the middle of that list, he says, Be not deceived. Every time that we hear that in the New Testament, we ought to listen up. He's saying there's a danger of being led astray just here. Here in Ephesians 5.6, notice it. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Vain means empty or useless or unscriptural. Uh, what does that statement presuppose? That there is a danger of deception here of thinking that God overlooks habitual evil and that now this New Testament God who's all about grace and unconditional love merely overlooks wicked behavior and he's saying don't let that happen. The other thing it presupposes is that there will be many that will teach a perverted sort of grace in the last days in which everybody who names the name of Christ is treated as a Christian no matter how they live. Do we understand what I'm saying? Security is eternal. And you parents, as you're dealing with your children, they come to Christ and they're growing. Be very careful laying their salvation on the chopping block every week over their failures. Talk about it with God most of the time. It can devastate them. Every time they fail, well, I just don't think you're saved. Parents can do that. It causes lifelong problems. But the balancing truth to that is, evidence is going to be manifest in the life of those who know God. The wind bloweth where it listeth. And now here's the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now friends, listen, there are multitudes today that redefine grace into unconditional love in an unscriptural way. I'll omit quotations because they're everywhere. This is what dominates so-called Christian psychology. This is what sits on the bestseller racks down at the so-called Christian bookstore. This is the Philip Yancey's. And uh, this is the Brian Houston's and, and, and a whole host of others. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, God is loving. But never forget God is a God of unflinching holiness. I would wager it happened this week somewhere in this country. Here's minister smiling face. And he's standing over a coffin. Well, I know that Johnny had 17 wives and nine children out of wedlock. 
Of course, you all know he was fired for embezzling company funds last month. And uh, he was a drunk. Beat half those wives. Never showed up at church. Matter of fact, I don't think he had a Bible that we know about. But, but at least we know Johnny has a home in heaven because when he was five years old, why he asked Jesus into his heart. How dare you say that? It's criminal. Friends, listen, I don't mean to be unkind, but funerals are for the living, not for the dead. And the hardest thing, but the best thing for a minister to do that circumstance is to challenge everybody in the room. You live in such a way that when you're up here in a wooden box, we're not wondering where you are. Because I got news for you, it's not a minister's job to preach hellions into heaven after they're dead. Hear the God of the Bible who sits on that throne one more time. They which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 6, don't forget this truth, backed up really by the testimony of the entire Bible. Look at, because of these things. Which things? Immorality, filthiness, the lust of possessions. Because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Because of those very acts and lifestyles, God pours out His wrath, and look at the description, on the children of disobedience. Why is that word important? What is disobedience? Is disobedience a circumstance or a condition? No. Disobedience is a choice. Paul is saying because of those very acts, God opens the floodgates of His infinite fury on rebels. Numbers 25. What's God's attitude towards immorality and adultery? Well, you can ask the 24,000 Jews who were slaughtered by that plague. What's God's attitude towards the unrepentant sodomites? He wants to save them, yes. But God's mercy has boundaries for those that will reject Him. And men can cross a line. And the opportunity for mercy is a thing of the past. I guarantee you those inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah are very much alive today, although in torments. And if you could talk to them, they would tell you all about the day that God rained hell out of heaven. And some well-meaning person will say, well, the only sin that men go to hell for is unbelief. I've heard that a lot. I get what saves a person is faith in Christ. But the overwhelming testimony of the New Testament, because of these things cometh the wrath of God and the children of disobedience. You can go to Revelation 20 at that great white throne judgment and all Christ rejectors stand before God. And what happens? The books are opened. Every deed, every motive, every omission, every opportunity, everything. And if a person chooses to reject God's offer of salvation... They are signing up to face the eternal flames of judgment for every single sin they have ever committed. They may have forgotten, but I guarantee you he did not. 
Isn't that one of the fearful things about God's eternality and timelessness? God says we make the mistake of thinking he's just like us. We view the succession of time, and over time our memory fades, and so do our passions. Let me remind you of something. God created time for this world, and he's outside of it. God's been called the eternal now, past, present, future, all the same to him. God is just as fully in this room as he is in the future, watching prophecy fulfilled as he is in the past. And everybody who stands on that day of judgment, God is still there. Decades ago, or in Cain's case, thousands of years ago, watching their evil happen in real time. And he does not forget. Look at verse 7 and we're done. Somebody says, well, I'm quite confident I know the Lord. Well, I'm glad. But please don't use it as an excuse to do evil. Notice the warning here. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. He's saying to believing people, you're a recipient of grace, wonderful. But don't think you can even go a moment in that lifestyle and escape consequences. What will happen? You will partake of the judgment of God in some of the same ways. You'll never go to hell if you're a real Christian. But I guarantee you there will be consequences. Even God's chill high hand will face the displeasure of their Father in heaven, guaranteed. All right, let's finish where we started. Are you an imitator of the God of the Bible? Do you have his definition of love? Are you yielded to God in service to others? Do you think of sin lightly? Is it comedy to you? Is God the old man upstairs that his memory is fading? And why he's going to overlook your secret deeds? You make excuses and redefine grace as liberty. I guarantee you he does not and never will. If the Son of God had to be brutally slaughtered, had to come to this earth and take on a body of flesh and die on that cruel cross and in those hours of darkness to be somehow forsaken of the Father when all the sins of the world were placed on Him and somehow He suffered the eternality of hell in those hours on that cross, if that had to happen to save rebels from hell, do you think that God now has a sense of humor about fornication, idolatry, and immorality? No way. God has many attributes. The angels in Isaiah 6 didn't say God is love, love, love. They said holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The only attribute that's repeated thrice like that for emphasis. Do you know him? I'm not so much asking the question, are you a Christian, although that's a valid one, but the problem with that question is everybody, not everybody, a lot of our culture has a bad definition. I like to ask people sometimes, are you a Christian? Yep. What's a Christian? 
That'll reveal some things. Well, you hear a lot. Well, I go to church. So is the devil. I have a Bible. It's a good start. I've been baptized. May it just come out wet. I keep the Ten Commandments. No, you don't. But if you think you do, I guess you can think that for a minute. What is a Christian? Is it something you did to fix yourself? Or is it something where you came to God in repentance and acknowledged you can't change yourself, you can't save yourself, you deserve His judgment? But that you believe that the Son of God was slaughtered on that cross and that He rose again the third day, and you're saying, I will take Him as my Savior, as the covering for my sin. That and that alone is real Christianity. Amazing love, the song says. How can it be that thou, my God, hast died for me? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us balance in this. Keep us from a wicked, smug self-righteousness. You know our own evil temptation. We may look at that list and say, oh, I'm glad I'm not like that. And Lord, even if that's true, that's only because you intervened to rescue us from destruction. I pray you'd help us as individuals and as a church to maintain a high view of our God, a serious view of sin, but yet have a massive heart of compassion in this needy world. Help us, Lord, to scripturally love Compassion, patience, care, truth. Thank you for redeeming our lives from destruction. Help us to be involved in the work of building up others and redeeming others as well. In Jesus' name, amen.